In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection antivirals to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies. It is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Following the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. So somewhere in the world, right now, there's an episode of The Twilight Zone playing. It remains one of the most cleverly crafted and iconic television shows of all time. Nicholas Parisi is uh, standing by to give us a glimpse of the series and the man behind The Twilight Zone, Rod Serling. Serling was one of television's brightest, most literate pioneers and a true believer in the medium. He was known as the angry young man of Hollywood early on in his career, clashing with studio execs and sponsors in his quest to loosen the corporate grip of censorship. He battled to write freely on controversial topics, and he would maintain that outspokenness as an artist and a thinker throughout his career. He's most revered for having had the ability to produce works of drama that probed the human psyche in an imaginative and thoroughly unique way. His work demonstrated a deep love for humanity and a strong belief of a better tomorrow. Over the next two hours, we're going to explore the life and times of Rod Serling and his work, The Twilight Zone pre-Twilight Zone, and The Night Gallery, and more. Nicholas Parisi serves on the board of directors of the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation, a charitable organization dedicated to preserving and promoting Rod Serling's legacy. He's a former staff writer and editor for Good Times Magazine in Long Island. He's also a musician and a vocalist. Back in 2010, his former band, Arioc, released a CD with the Serling-inspired title Between Light and Shadow on Retrospect Records. He lives in Ronk. Oh, I'm going to need some help with this one. Ronkon, 
Bronconcoma, <laughs> New York. And he's the, he's the author of Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination, with a foreword by Rod Serling's daughter, Anne Serling. Nicholas is also presenting Serling Fest 2022, being held this August in Binghamton, New York. Nicholas, welcome. How are you? I'm doing great, Richard. How are you doing? I'm well. Okay, so first of all, help me out with the, uh, the where are you living exactly? It's, it's Ronconcoma. Ronconcoma. <laughs> Ronconcoma, yes. There you go. Your instinct, may, your instinct may be to say Ronconcoma, but it's Ronconcoma. Ronconcoma. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Um, f- well, let's let's um, promote the, uh, the uh, Serling Fest 2022 right out of the gate because um, this is great stuff you're doing. This is in Binghamton, New York. Give us the dates and the particulars. It is. Thanks. And I, I appreciate that because this is a big event for us. It's going to be held August 12th, 13th, and 14th. In Binghamton, New York. In Binghamton, it was Rod Serling's hometown. Uh, this was where he grew up. Rod Serling was born in Syracuse, New York, which is about an hour north of Binghamton. But when he was just about a year and a half old, the family moved to Binghamton, and he spent the rest of his formative years in Binghamton. And he loved his hometown. It was just It's just one of those things. He, he loved his hometown. He, had, he held a, a great nostalgia for his hometown, a great yearning to go back to his, his, his childhood in Binghamton. And uh, it's something he carried with him for the rest of his life. So the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation is based in Binghamton. Uh, it was founded in Binghamton. And this is going to be our sixth Serling Fest. And uh, it's going to be technically at three different places, but they're all very, very close together in Binghamton. But the main event is going to be on August 13th at the Forum Theater, the Broome County Forum Theater, uh, all day long from 9 a.m. till 10 o'clock at night. And we do all sorts of things. We have screenings, we have trivia, we have raffle giveaways. We have a whole bunch of really great authors who are going to join us this year. Uh, Mark Zickery, author of The Twilight Zone Companion, will be with us. Uh, Ann Serling, of course, will be with us. Uh, Mark DeWidziak, who wrote Everything I Know, I Need, Everything I Need to Know I Learned in The Twilight Zone, will be with us. Uh, I'll be there. My book, Rod Serling, is Life, Work, and Imagination, you mentioned. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a gathering of probably the, the greatest gathering of Serling experts you're ever going to find in one place, all together for three days of, of nothing but tribute to, to Rod Serling and The Twilight Zone, but also uh, things outside of The Twilight Zone as well. Not too many television writers have... You know, scholarly works written about them, uh, but there have been a number of, of scholarly works written about Rod Serling, including yours. How did you become a Rod Serling scholar? <laughs> well, p- quite, quite um, unintendedly, I guess. <laughs> um, not, not purposely, that's for sure. I, uh, you know, I was like everybody else. I, I was a huge Twilight Zone fan when I was a kid. I watched it, you know, I was, I was mesmerized by it from the time I was probably nine or 10 years old. I just, I just fell in love with the show. And I just became interested in learning more about what Rod Serling wrote outside of the Twilight Zone. So I became kind of a collector of information. I just wanted to gather as much information as I could about all the things Rod Serling wrote. And I have a kind of a completist mentality, you know, as as a collector. I think most collectors are like that. If you collect something, you want to collect all of that thing. You know, if you collect, you know, comic books, you want to collect maybe all of the one character that you like the most. You, you want to be complete about it. So, so I did that with, with information. I wanted to, be, to compile the most complete uh, list and archive, so to speak, mental archive of Rod Serling's career. And so that was the, that was the idea behind the book. And, and, and it just uh, kind of went from there. It kind of jumped from that, that thinking uh, into a book. 
how was his, his, his character shaped growing up in Binghamton? I'm guessing, you know, he was born, what, 1925? So I'm guessing he, he listened to, you know, radio dramas and mysteries and the shadow and all that. But were there any particular shows or any particular performers that really influenced Rod Serling? Yeah, sure. Well, well, he was born Christmas Day, 1924, so almost 1925. And he, yeah, he grew up um, in what he would be, what he would consider to be an idyllic time. I mean, an idyllic, uh, he had an idyllic childhood. He, at least that's the way he looked at it. And he had an older brother, Robert. His older brother, Robert, is, was, I believe, six years older than him. And he and his brother loved the things that you could, you know, that you think they would love. They loved radio shows, The Shadow for sure. Um, Rod very quickly became a big fan of Arch Obler uh, um, uh, and Norman Corwin. Those were the two. Those were the two that were big influences on him as, as terms in terms of radio writers. Um, but Rod pretty much, and, and he loved movies too, of course. He, he loved everything that you would imagine: comic books, the pulp magazines. He read. He he was a reader. He loved King Kong. Was probably his favorite movie. Um, so he was uh, kind of a typical kid for the time. I think. I think and. And he just, um, you know, he filled his mind with those things, with the, with the radio shows and with pulp magazines and things like that. And then, you know, when he was 18 years old in high school in Binghamton, the day after high school graduation, he went off to war. And that is kind of the dividing line for Rod Serling. I mean, he had this, this again, this idyllic childhood that he, you know, remembered so fondly. And the, it ended very, very abruptly by him joining the army and going off to war. And um, that that shaped him in terms of he then idealized that 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 time of innocence that he and he was always trying to recapture it from that from that moment forward. How did the the experience in the Second World War and and maybe afterwards, how did that shape his because he had his tremendous sense of justice? How did that shape that? Well, well, for one thing, I do think that for to some extent, I think that Rod Sterling was born with that sense of justice. I really do. I, I think that it was in, inherent in him somehow. It could have been genetic. Uh, he could have gotten it from his father, who was, by all accounts, a very, very smart man and a very, very moral man. Uh, so it certainly could have come from from him. And it could also have come from the fact that he was a little guy. Rod Sterling was a little guy. He was five feet five, maybe, you know, on a, on a tall day, I like to say. He was five five. Um, and he, uh, not that I don't think there's ever been any stories about Rod being bullied. Uh, Rod was a very, very um, popular kid. He was a gregarious kid. He liked to talk. He had lots and lots of friends. He played baseball. So I don't think he was ever bullied, but he had a sense of, uh, what it would be like to be bullied. And, uh, you know, I think that when he joined the army, uh, you know, listen, he was, he was Jewish. He wanted to fight the Nazis, you know, but I think he also had this idea that he was this, uh, this country invading, <laughs> invading other countries. And, you know, we got to do something about this. And the experience shaped him just uh, profoundly. I mean, it just, um, it affected everything that Rod Serling was from that point forward as a man, as a writer, as a thinker, he saw, you know, he saw some terrible, terrible things during the war. He saw some some major combat. He came back from the war, certainly with PTSD. I mean, uh, they didn't call it that at the time, but he certainly had it. He had nightmares. He had flashbacks. And um, he had to deal with that for the rest of his life. And it just, it shaped everything he wrote from that point forward. He wrote lots and lots of war-related stories in and out of the Twilight Zone. And, um it just, yeah, it changed his way of thinking, I think, uh, in general. At what point did he, did he decide he was going to write 
uh, for this new medium of television? Well, he was there. He was Rod got into television right at the ground floor. You know, he, he was he was there at the very, very infancy of, te- of television, 1949, 1950. His first uh, television show produced on a national uh, program was in 1950. And um, so he started out as a radio writer. He started by writing radio scripts and he, and by collecting rejection slips. I mean, he sent, uh, he sent scripts to every radio series on the face of the earth and they were all rejected over and over and over again. Even after he had gotten agents, they were still rejected over and over and over again. But um, he saw the writing on the wall when television came to be. Um, when, when television came around, there were still, you know, there were those people who were snobs about television. There were people who thought, you know, this isn't going to last. It's a phase. It's, um, you know, they had, you know, kind of maybe some misplaced loyalty to radio, like radio is more cerebral. And and Rod had none of that. Rod saw the writing on the wall. He said, this is the future. TV is where it's at. So he jumped on the TV bandwagon, so to speak. I mean, right away with and with both feet. So he just started sending really some of the same great scripts he wrote for radio. He would send to the to television series. And it took him a long time to break through. But um, but he finally did. And then took off. As a as a, a collector of all things, Rod Serling, do you have any of his original scripts well not original but yes i do have copies of lots of them um yeah there you know in researching the book there are some archives that uh that hold rod sterling's collections of the original of the original scripts of his original radio scripts original twilight zone scripts original everything and i was able to go through those archives in depth um when i was doing research so i i do have lots of that stuff and and some of it is very very interesting you know uh he was writing you know, one misconception I think about Rod Serling is that The Twilight Zone was the first time that he wrote science fiction. And that is absolutely not the case. He wrote lots of science fiction before The Twilight Zone. It didn't, most of it didn't get produced because television just wasn't doing science fiction really before The Twilight Zone. Uh, very little anyway. And um, so so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't produced, but but he did write it. He, lo- he always loved science fiction. Loved it since he was a kid reading those magazines, Analog and, and Amazing Stories and things like that. Uh, so, so yeah, so you were a lot of science fiction and, and fantasy, time travel stuff, and going all the way back to his early radio days, he, he was into that. Um, a Town Turns to Dust has some science fiction elements, wouldn't you say? Uh, well, A Town Has Turned to Dust, uh, if we're talking about the same, the same script, that is the, the script that Rod wrote, uh, that was supposed to be based on the Emmett Till right. kidnapping. Yeah, and they they, yeah. they later they later remade it as a science fiction uh, uh, movie made for like made for cable movie and which was a, a real good idea I think actually to take that script and set it in a in a science fiction context so they they put some science fiction in it but, ah, but that came really, later. yeah yeah that that came later yeah but he and we'll come back around to that but he did try and sort of dis, sometimes he used science fiction right to disguise to get it past. The message, these controversial messages past the ad agencies and the and the censors and so forth. But we'll come back around to A Town Turns to Dust. Um, just sort of one more kind of, I don't know, philosophical question before we dive re- right into his career. And that is, when you talk to, to younger people, uh, and maybe they only know of the Twilight Zone because of the reboot that came out a couple of years ago. And how do you, what do you tell them about Rod Serling? How do you explain to them uh, why he's so important even today 
Wow, that's that's a really great question, Rich. Um, you know, well, the first thing I would say is that you would be surprised at how many younger people do know the Twilight Zone, uh, the original Twilight Zone. You know, they um, first of all, being the phrase Twilight Zone is just in our language. You know, you don't even have to have ever seen an episode of the original series to know what the Twilight Zone means. You know, you know that, you know, if you're in the Twilight Zone, you know, it means something's off kilter, something is weird, something strange, something just doesn't make sense. So they know that. And um, if they know the Twilight Zone, then, you know, you're, you got your, your work is half done for you because because they, they know what the imagination of Rod Serling is all about. And they know what those shows are like and they, they, and they probably enjoy it. But when I tell, you know, forget about kids and when I tell anybody what's important about Rod Serling, it's it's the it's his humanity. It's the humanity that he put into his work, into the scripts, whether they were science fiction, fantasy or not. It's the the humanity that that he put into those characters, into the messages. If the Twilight Zone was just a collection of twist endings that were shocking for the moment and then went away, we wouldn't be talking about it right now. We're only talking about it because Rod Sterling made that show more than a collection of twist endings or spaceships or rockets or or anything visual. It always had something deeper beneath the surface. And that's what's made it last for 60 for 60 years now. Um, so before Twilight Zone, there was uh, Craft Theater, there was Playhouse 90, there was The Steel Hour. Um, what, what work from that period jumps out at you as maybe his finest? Well, I think I think Requiem for a Heavyweight for, for Playhouse 90. It was the second episode of Playhouse 90, and that was almost certainly Rod's favorite piece of his own work. He was very, very proud of Requiem for a Heavyweight. Uh, I make the point in the book, and I don't think I had to make this point, really. Anybody who knows Rod Sterling kind of is aware of this already, but but Rod was his own tough, toughest critic. Rod was his hard, old, harshest critic. He he never gave himself a break, and he would criticize his own work to the nth degree. But Requiem for Heavyweight was the one piece of work that he never said a bad word about Requiem for Heavyweight. That was something he really put his heart and soul into, and it was a triumph on all on all levels. And uh, he was very, very proud of it. So, I mean, that, that one does jump out at me That's, uh, as being the finest probably before the Twilight Zone, yeah. Uh, he did a little uh, boxing of his own, didn't he? He sure did, yeah, During in the Army. In the Army during basic training, he, was, uh, he uh, represented his unit, the 511th Parachute Infantry Regiment. And uh, by all accounts, he, he won 16 or 17 bouts in a row. He was a lightweight or a featherweight, really a featherweight. Uh, and uh, in his 17th or 18th bout, he got demolished. He got, uh, he got killed. He broke his nose and he was really just uh, knocked for a loop. And he said, all right, I think I'm done with it. I think I'm done with this. So that was it. But, but he always had a respect for boxing and for boxers. He had an affection for boxers in particular uh, because he just felt that these you know, people who dedicate themselves to boxing they are not prepared really to do anything else. And it's such a finite, you know, any athlete really, but boxers particularly have such a finite shelf life. You know, they can only do this for so long. And then when they're done, what do they do? What do they, where do they go with their life? And that was record for heavyweight. That was the, the existential you know, question about that show. Like, where does this guy go after he's done boxing? When they tell him, Hey, you can't box anymore. What's he going to do with his life? And that, that Rod Stern was very uh, um, sensitive to that, to that question. Uh, I saw an interview and th- this is legendary. I think all Rod Serling fans talk about that um, interview he did with Mike Wallace, which was like 1958 or 59. It was just before he he started The Twilight Zone, but he was alluding to this next series that he was going to do. And, and it was almost like he was looking forward to it as almost 
an opportunity to maybe relax a little bit because he had been at war with the ad agencies and the sponsors and the studio execs for so long, um, you know, about, he was just sick and tired of compromising himself, I guess. He wanted to write profound television dramas. So he was looking forward to The Twilight Zone in that in that capacity, but it didn't work out that way, did it? You know, it wasn't like he got a chance to relax. I don't know if Rod could relax. I, I don't know if he had that in him. He, he was he was constantly working, constantly thinking, constantly on the move. He was just I don't know if he ever relaxed other than when he got to, uh, you know, on his boat on Lake Cayuga, you know, and then in the summertime, you know, that was probably about it. But but, yeah, the Twilight Zone. Well, from that perspective, he did get to relax to some extent. Because, yeah, he, the, the battles with the sponsors and the network executives pretty much was done. The Twilight Zone really did take him out of that realm. He didn't really have to fight with them anymore because, you know, a lot has been made about the, about the Twilight Zone being able to address these issues through allegory, through science fiction, through fantasy, and kind of slip the issues past the sponsors. And I think that's, that's somewhat true. That, that, is, that is true. And Rod Stone himself said plenty of times that that's one of the reasons he did the Twilight Zone was to, so he could get away with some of this stuff. But I think it also was just about the fact that the network and the sponsors weren't going to take a half hour filmed science fiction series as seriously as they would take a 90 minute straight drama. In other words, Rod could do something like the monsters would do on Maple Street, which is as blatant a social commentary as you're ever going to get. And I don't think anybody could watch the show and not realize what Rod Serling is saying. I mean, it's not like it's subterfuge. I mean, he, he, he said what he wanted to say in that show. But he didn't get into any trouble with uh, with that show because it's like, you know, leave Rod alone. He's in his little sandbox. Nobody cares about that half hour science fiction show. It's for kids. You know, it's not a big deal. It's not 10 o'clock at night. It's, you know, nobody cares. You know, and they kind of gave him they gave him the leeway because they just didn't give the amount of respect to science fiction, I think, that they would have given. They would they weren't watching it as closely as they would watch a Playhouse 90 and say, hey, Rod, you got to change that line, that line, that line. because It's going to, you know, war, you know, it's going to bother the sponsors south of the Mason Dixon line. This is, you know, this is, you know, robots and aliens and spaceships. And it's, you know, it's just not going to be taken as seriously as, as that kind of stuff. By design, I guess, then he chose, yes. he yeah. chose that genre by design. Although, okay, well, yeah. he did break format and we'll discuss that as well. Over five seasons, what, 150 plus episodes. How did the, uh, the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation come about? Well, it started long before I became involved with it. It started in 1985, so about 10 years after Rod died. And it was started primarily by, by Rod Serling's really, his first mentor, Helen Foley, a teacher of his in, at Binghamton High School, who taught him public speaking. And Helen Foley was, um, you know, they were very, they were good friends. They, you know, she was his teacher, but they became, they were friends and they stayed friends for the rest of Rod's life, even after he left left high school and she was a fan she, you know she was an unabashed fan she took a lot of pride in, in rod's career and his rod's success and she loved the guy and, and he loved her and so um in 1985 she and a bunch of other rod, of local binghamton people who knew rod personally said we want to do something that can ensure that this man's work is not forgotten and they started the foundation it was it was originally the rod sterling uh, memorial or the rod sterling committee, the Rod Serling Memorial Committee, and then it became the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation. And um, it's a 501c3 charity. It's completely, uh, it's a, it's a complete, uh, completely charity. It's, it's, none of us get paid for anything we do for the foundation. It is a, a labor of love for all of us. And um, 
I'm really happy to do it. And Sterling Fest is our big event, uh, big yearly uh, fundraising event. How many uh, how many people are drawn to the uh, uh, Sterling Fest typically? Generally, I mean, we've had a couple hundred. It's it's not a huge event. Um, uh, if there's two to three hundred, that would probably be about right. I certainly hope we'll get more than that this year, but but that's about where it's been. So the I think the one one of the nice things I tell people about Sterling Fest is that it's not you know, Comic-Con, you're not going to come and be swamped by a, a 15,000 people and have to wait on lines and not be able to meet people and stuff. You come to Sterling Fest, you're going to be able to sit and talk to Ann Sterling. You're going to be able to sit and talk to Mark, Mark Zickery. You're going to be able to sit and talk to me and Mark Dewidziak and Tony Alvarella and all, all these people who have, who are, who have intimate knowledge of Rod Sterling's work. And, and, and you're going to see some, you're going to see things that you would not see. Otherwise we screen very rare uh, Rod appearances, interviews that you would never have seen before uh, we're going to end the Saturday night. We're going to end with a screening of Seven Days in May, uh, feature film that Rod wrote. So, uh, so you get to see it on the big screen. So it's just um, it's a really, really great gathering of, of aficionados of, of Rod Serling. So we were talking about his battles in the early days on Craft uh, uh, Theater and Playhouse 90 and, and the Steel Hour with uh, sponsors and ad agencies and the studio execs and the censors. And he would... F- he would usually lose. I mean, he would fight the good fight. You know, I want that line in there. I want the show told this way. And he'd lose. And then he'd go and, I don't know, kind of gripe to the media about it. Um, and I guess hence the title, The Angry Young Man of, of Hollywood. Did that end up costing him work? I mean, did he have that hard to work with label? Incredibly, not really. No, no. That is an incredible um, kind of almost a uh, contradiction you would think that he uh that he didn't get that label he got the nickname television's angry television's angry young man but but he really did not have the uh reputation because for a couple of reasons one is that people love to work with rod Stone. uh you know i you know in my research for my book i spent four years going through all of rod serling's correspondence letters he wrote letters he received uh all of this stuff interviews with everybody and it's impossible to find somebody that didn't get along with rod serling he was a a very personable guy when you were working with him he had tremendous respect for the people he worked with so the producers the other writers that he worked with uh the directors um he had tremendous respect for these people and so they had a, a a real fondness for rod serling and they enjoyed working with him and i think that even the sponsors um, you talk about, say, the, the people who ran the ad agencies, you know, it's people who would actually come and watch a rehearsal of a show. Well, Rod would, Rod would bash the interference, but he would never bash them personally. He would, they, were, they were still friends with, you know, he was friends with these guys. He, and he understood that they had a job to do. And he would say, listen, your job is to push a product. I get that. I understand that. My job is to tell a story. So let's work on this. So we, so we both get to do our jobs here, you know, and he was, you know, so he was very, um, he was just so personable that he never really, yeah, had that. Uh, and it certainly didn't cost him work. You know, one thing Rod Serling did was, which was smart and which was, I guess, just kind of made sense is that he didn't really start making a stink about some of these things until after he had a name for himself, you know, back in, in his early days from 1950 to 1954 or so, you don't find Rod Serling, you know, bemoaning the sponsor interference much on, on you know, at all, much if not, if, if at all. But after he hit with Patterns, Patterns was the was the show that made him an overnight success. And that's literal. That's like hyperboles overnight. From, it showed one night. The next morning he was a star. He was he was the most in-demand writer in television. And from that point forward, he said, you know what? 
there are some things I want to use this medium for and things I want to say, and I'm not going to shut up anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to say what I have on my mind and let the chips fall where they may. Tell us about patterns that, uh, that breakthrough series for him. Patterns was a one hour script that Rod wrote for craft theater. And it was the story of, it wasn't a controversial show, really, but it was a story of a man from Cincinnati, which uh, and Rod Serling worked in Cincinnati. So this is somewhat autobiographical. It was a man from Cincinnati who gets uh, a job with a big firm in New York City. So he's going from kind of the small pond to the big pond. And, and when he gets the job in New York City, he uh, eventually realizes that he's really there to take the place of the current vice president, who was an older man, unwell and is not performing up to you know, his ex- expectations, and, it's, and he has to take this guy's job. And it's about the, the moral dilemma that this guy ha- has been put into because he likes this guy. He, 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 he respects the guy. He has affection for this guy, and he doesn't, want it. he doesn't want to push this guy out. But at the same time, he does want the job. He wants the job. He wants to move up the corporate ladder. His wife wants him to move up the corporate ladder. And so it's about the, you know, that moral dilemma that he has in, in, uh, in dealing with a boss who is a, uh, a slave driver, you know, and um, and and the the tension between the Fred Staples is the character's name between Fred Staples and Walter Ramsey, the boss of the company, is just so well written. So well written. The dialogue between those two characters is so powerful and so cutting that um, when this show aired, and you know, people would think it's hyperbole now. They think I'm exaggerating or something, but. After the show aired, the next morning, the, the New York Times ran a review of this show and said it was the best thing they'd ever seen on television. In terms of writing, acting, production, direction, it was the high point of the medium to that point, period. Uh, so it got unbelievably rave reviews. And it, like I said, Rod Sterling's, uh, you know, one of his famous lines is that the moment that that show went off the air, my phone started ringing and it hasn't stopped since. And, and he said, like, 20 years later, you know, it hasn't stopped since. Because that was it. I mean, as soon as that show hit, that was it. And the thing about TV back then, you know, this was live. You know, this was a live performance. So one of the amazing things about Patterns is just the fact that it went off without a hitch. I mean, it was just such a perfect show. It was live, and there's not a single flubbed line, not a, not a single flubbed word. I mean, the direction is perfect. There's no boom mic hanging in the frame somewhere. There's nobody tripping on something. It was just a perfect performance all the way around. And... When, you know, with live television back in those, those days, it was like the opening of a Broadway show. And, you know, just like a Broadway show can open, get terrible reviews and be gone the next day or within a week, a, te- a great, a well-reviewed television show can set somebody up for a long time. And that's what this did for us, certainly. It gave him those kind of reviews where now he was on top of the world and he kind of took, took it from there. A lot of people used television as a springboard uh, to get into film. I mean, he did write, obviously, he wrote some great film uh, scripts, but he, he stayed in television. Why, why didn't he take that leap? Did he love the medium so much? I think that was definitely part of it. Um, he was asked that question, you know, several, several times. And part of it was that, yeah, he did have an affection for television. It was where he grew up, so to speak, as a writer. You know, it's, it, was what, you know it was what he knew and he was comfortable there. And not only was he comfortable there, but he believed in the power of television. He believed that a medium like this that can enter everybody's living room, and especially in those days, we're talking about when there was three networks or four, maybe. Uh, and, you know, so you had 60 million people watching one show. 
He believed that if a medium had that much power to reach that many people at any given time, then it better be better than what it's been. It better, it better educate people. And, you know, he wanted to entertain people always. He always believed in entertaining people. That was first and foremost. But again, he believed that if you had this power, you know, to use the Spider-Man line, with great power comes great responsibility. You know, he had a responsibility. He, feel, he felt that television had a responsibility. So, so he stayed with it with the idea that I'm going to do what, everything I can to try to get this medium to grow up. And, and, and he did. He, he helped it to grow up tremendously. Nicholas Parisi is uh, with us. We're talking about the life and times of Rod Serling, of course, the creator of The Twilight Zone. We'll take a quick time out, come back and uh, discuss further. Don't go away. Guys, we've seen so many people making ridiculous money from crypto. But did you know it's easy for you to do the same? The Copy My Crypto membership site shows you the coins that the YouTuber James McMahon personally holds and allows you to copy him. It's like having a big brother who knows what he's doing. You don't need to know a thing about crypto or how to invest as you simply do what he does. So let me tell you more about James. He runs the Crypto with James YouTube channel, which despite heavy censorship, has over 17,000 subscribers and 1 million views. Since March 2020, he's told his viewers to buy 26 crypto coins. Had you put in $100 into each one, it would now be worth over $53,000. Of the 26 coins, his top pick of the year, a coin called Phantom, is currently up over 440 times from when he said to buy. That one call alone has retired a number of people, including guys in their 20s and 30s. Remember, this is public knowledge. You can go to YouTube and verify this for yourself. So if you'd like to join the 1,300 members who copy James, then stop what you're doing and head over to copymycrypto.com forward slash dollar. Copymycrypto.com forward slash dollar. That's D-O-L-L-A-R. You'll not only find proof of everything I've said, but listeners get full access for just one dollar. You can't find this offer anywhere else, but act fast because the offer ends soon. That's copymycrypto.com forward slash dollar. That's D-O-L-L-A-R. Don't take this offer lightly. He's the real deal. Go visit the site now. Welcome back. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Enjoying uh, this conversation immensely with Nicholas Parisi and uh, presenting Serling Fest 2022 in Binghamton, New York, coming up uh, next month in August. And uh, once again, the website for more information. Serlingfest2022.com. All right. Will you be? Are you a, a licensed to air like episodes uh, from the from the series? Or we have been in the past, uh, but this year actually we're uh, not going to be airing any episodes. Uh, we are, as I mentioned, going to be screening seven days in May on Saturday, and we're going to be airing some rarer stuff outside of the Twilight Zone this year. All right. Um, did Did Serling ever direct? No, he never did. And sometimes you'll see online the producer, director, wrestler. No, he, he never directed anything. He said, I couldn't direct traffic. You know, that's, that's Interesting. Funny. I mean, yeah. because obviously he was a wordsmith and he loved, he loved to write. To take that leap of faith and to hand that over to somebody else, to a director, and not, I don't know, he just seemed so, when he's on camera, he seems so earnest. Uh, I just find that hard to believe that, you know, he would, he would let that go. That's his baby. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, well, with the Twilight Zone, I think that he felt that he didn't let it go because he really was so involved with everything. He was so involved with the production, with the casting, with the score, the music, with the editing, everything. He didn't get behind the camera and direct, but he was involved with everything else you could possibly have. And, and I think he just, again, I think he knew his limitations and he knew... You know, he was he was involved with hiring the directors. He would hire the right person and he would have some control over, you know, the, the way it came out from all these other aspects. But he never had the desire to actually direct. When he was writing uh, at Playhouse 90, did he work with Patty Chayefsky? He knew Patty Chayefsky very well. Um, they never worked together. No, but it, but they were writing certainly right at the same time for the same shows. And yeah, yeah, they uh, they knew each other very well. Um, that's my favorite movie, Network course, Patty uh, Chayefsky, uh, and that came out, I guess, like the year after Serling died in 70, yeah. came out in 76. I'm just, yeah. I was just trying to imagine if those two had ever gotten together and worked together. I mean, on no. own, they were magnificent, but can you imagine? It's like Tesla and Edison. Yeah, well, the, I think the closest you would get, actually, is Rod did work with Reginald Rose on a, on a, uh, on a script once. Rod um, never worked with another writer. He was always, always by himself. But one, one time he uh, worked with Reginald Rose on a script called The Challenge. It was a, a pilot for a series. Well, the series really was called The Challenge. And uh, he and Reginald Rose got together and brainstormed a bunch of ideas for it. And they wrote the pilot script together. Rod ended up later saying that Reginald Rose probably wrote 98% of it. But that may have been a little bit of Rod's, Rod's self-deprecating and not wanting to take credit for it. But, but um, that, that show is available. You can kind of find it's, it. Was never, it was never aired. It, it was produced. It was never aired. And the show was not picked up, obviously. But that's the one time where he did really uh, collaborate with another writer. And it just happened to be you know, Reginald Burroughs, which is, I don't know, maybe a half a step below Patty Chayefsky, maybe, if that. It never aired. I, I'm wondering if, like, Serling aficionados, Serling fans, did they, like, look for those unreleased gems the way, like, a Beatle fan looks for the, those rare unreleased tracks? Well, I certainly did. Yeah, yeah, that was, again, that was part of the, that was part of what spurred the book, was that I started looking for all of these things. I wanted to know what exists. You know, so much of Rod Serling's work, and not just Rod Serling's work, but early television is gone. I mean, it's lost. The, the shows that aired live, many of them were not captured. They were not filmed. They were not captured on kinescope. And if they were captured on kinescope, they were thrown away, you know. So a lot of them are gone. So so one of the things that really spurred my book was a, a desire to catalog, all right, what, is, what exists, what doesn't exist, what is at some archive somewhere, what is at some music, you know, some television museum somewhere, and what can I actually get like on the black market, you know, for lack of a better term, you know? So yeah, so I, I searched out for all of those things and got my hands on anything, anything that exists, yeah. Uh, we talked about whether, you know, he directed, um, I want to talk about acting because he he once said every writer is a frustrated actor who rehearses his lines in the hidden audition of his skull or something like that. <laughs> Close, yeah, something like that. Was he a frustrated actor? I don't think he was a frustrated actor. No, I think again, I, I think that was another example of he knew his limitations. I think he would have loved to have been an actor, and he was uh, he was a ham. I mean, he he was a ham. He liked to perform. And he did perform when he was a kid. I mean, he performed. I have clippings of Rod Serling performing at the local Jewish center when he was six years old. You know, I mean, he performed at, in plays from the time he was six years old through high school. And after high school, he performed on radio shows. He acted, you know, he did radio acting. He acted in a lot of the shows that he wrote. 
but he never um again he was five foot five and that at that time you know tom cruise probably wouldn't have made it as a leading man he had to be had to have some height to you had to have some heft to you so he knew he wasn't going to be a leading man um but he did like to be on camera he really did no matter what he said he, he liked to be on camera and uh so he did some some acting uh after the twilight zone other than just the uh introductions that he would do on the twilight zone Right. Is that why he inserted himself as the narrator on camera? Was that his decision or did, did he want to do that? Uh, he wanted to do it. Yes. Um, it was a kind of a, a kind of a um, long story. But the, the, the first season of the Twilight Zone, he's not on camera. He's on, he's just he's off camera. He's he does the introductions off camera. And the second season, they wanted to add an on-camera narrator. They thought it might, you know, you know, you know uh, juice things up a little bit, maybe get the, the, the ratings up a little bit. So they were going to go get Orson Welles. And the long story short is Rod said, I'll do it, I'll do it. And, and they let Rod do it. <laughs> and, and, and again, it was his baby. So, so he really did, if he said he was going to do it, they were going to let him do it. And, you know, the rest is history. He was, he was who, could, who could be better at, at introducing Twilight and episodes? You know, nobody. <laughs> There's a well. You mentioned it, Orson Welles. Uh, I I wasn't sure if that was an apocryphal story or not. That Orson Welles was originally slated to be the narrator. So he they they gave it some consideration. Yes, I think the the misconception on the on the Orson Welles things is is what you said is that he was never the or- original choice for narrator. Some there's been some. Uh, discrepancies about that that they originally wanted Orson Welles what they what they originally they originally if you watch you know on the DVD collections the Blu-ray collections there is a a dem, kind of a demo version of the pilot episode where is everybody that has uh, a different announcer doing the doing the the introduction and the, the Twilight Zone theme you know the, the beginning introduction um, that was Jason Van, uh, I was forget the guy's name Van Voorhees I forget I forget his full name but but so there was a different uh, announcer for that and then Rod took over from from him and it was just it was just after the first season was done that they decided you know maybe we should have somebody on camera and the first name they thought of was Orson Welles and he said and Rod actually I had you know the, Rod was scheduled to go, to fly to London to meet to meet with Orson Welles and I never was able to think, to determine if he actually did follow through with that um, but shortly afterward. Uh, he got the job, you know, so I think I think, like I said, I think he kind of objected to a certain extent, probably and he probably had a good standing to object because Orson Welles would have wanted too much money. I mean, and, and by too much money, I mean any money because because they were already trying to cut the budget in every way they possibly could. They couldn't afford to go hire Orson Welles to, to be the narrator. So Rod was Rod came at the right price. You know? so, <laughs> right. so he got the job. Well, we'll talk about the penny pinching in a moment. But if that. If that meeting had taken place, I don't know, I'm imagining, you know, the Savoy Hotel or something. Boy, would I like to have been a fly on the wall for that conversation. The, no doubt. The meeting of those two minds. I'm, 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 wonder, I'm, I'm sure Rod Serling must have been listening to the Mercury Theater back in 38 with the War of the Worlds that night. Did he ever mention I, it? I don't think he ever mentioned it, but yeah, I can't imagine he was You know, he wasn't, you know. So the, um, the budgeting for the Twilight Zone um, – Penny pinching, I guess, to say the least. They had to salvage props from from elsewhere. Tell me about that. Well, they yeah, they reused props uh, from themselves. I mean, so there, yeah, you'll see certain things throughout the series reused in various episodes. Uh, certain props, and they would get certain props from the uh, from the MGM lot. You know, there there would be uh, you know there would be you know they used the spaceship from uh, from uh, Forbidden Planet. You know, I mean, they would do that when they had to. And again, I think that some, I think one of the you know one of the amazing things about the Twilight Zone is that 
you know, nobody really cares about that. Nobody, nobody cares that the, the aliens looked, looked crummy. You know, nobody cares that the, the spaceship, you saw the wires on it. You know, it just, it was, they, they, I think watching this violence, and you know that that just wasn't the focus, you know, that, that, that wasn't what was important. You know, it was nice. I mean, every now and then, listen, Twilight Zone did some really, uh, cutting edge stuff for the time for 1959, 1916. When you're talking about things like Eye of the Beholder, uh, you know, the direction of Eye of the Beholder, where you have to go through a half an hour without seeing anyone's face, you know, and, and the sh- the way they use shadows. And I mean, the directing job by Douglas Hayes in that episode is, is just tremendous. I think it was Douglas Hayes. I hope I got that right. <laughs> I hope I got that right. But, but um, things like that, or The Howling Man, another one I think of where it's just, they made the most of these, um, you know, unusual sets. You know, you would see things like, like an episode like The Obsolete Man, where they have a doorway that's about 25 feet tall and Burgess Meredith goes through this doorway that's 25 feet tall and he goes to a, 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 a table that's like 25 feet long to a, to a, a podium that's, that Fritz Weaver is standing behind that's about 25 feet tall. I mean, it was just, this, they, they use the settings, they use the, the, those kind of things to such great effect that you know, they didn't need a, you know, a million dollar budget for special effects. You know, they got, they got it done. Uh, so five, five seasons. Uh, yes. It was always in black and white, right? They never. Oh, yes. Yeah. Was there ever a, a, a consideration, I mean, for, for shooting in color? Not during those five seasons. No. Um, after the show ended, Rod, you know, Rod wanted the Twilight Zone to continue. As Again, as much as he said he was burnt out and he was tired of it and everything else, I believe he, if somebody had come to him and said, yeah, we want to do another season of the show, he would have done it. And I do have some, some correspondence from him in the sixties saying, Hey, what about this? What about an hour long Twilight Zone show in color? You know, why can't we do this? And he, he wanted to bring it back. And he would have, if he had brought it back, it would have been in color. It would have been akin to night gallery. They didn't, wasn't, or was it originally a 30 and it moved to an hour or was it an hour and they moved it to a 30? No, it was originally a 30. It was a 30 for three seasons. And then it came back mid-season, the next season, at an hour length. They did 18 one-hour episodes, and then it came back for a full season of half-hour shows for a fifth season. So was the feeling then that the hour-long just didn't work? Pretty much, yeah. Pretty much, yeah. The hour-long uh, are pretty universally seen as, as not as good as the half-hour shows. And I think Rod, Rod, you know, Rod wanted the show to be an hour-long to begin with. He re- it was originally proposed as an hour-long show. And it took some doing to get him to agree to make it a half an hour. And so he never quite got that idea out of his head. So when they proposed to do it an hour in the fourth season, he was, he was, he was, he was all for it. It wasn't like it was against his will. He wanted to do it as an hour and it just didn't quite go the way he wanted it to go. And so he did not, he wasn't, uh, he didn't object when they said, let's go back to a half hour. He knew that that was, that was a better format for the show. And how were the ratings like from, from the season one uh, right through to the end? They were never great, but they were never terrible. They were always just kind of borderline and enough to get the show re- renewed. Occasionally, it was, it, you know, it had some episodes that were very highly rated, had some, some good promotion uh, behind certain episodes and everything. So, so occasionally the ratings would spike, but, but they were never great. But they were good enough to renew, and it also had the prestige, and it had Rod Serling. And, and he really was the biggest name as far as writers go in television at the time. So, so they were willing to go with the show when it was decent ratings and had some prestige to it. They were willing to, to keep it going. The theme song, we have to talk about the theme song and those, you know, do, 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 you, you need three notes. It's worldwide. It's one of the great brands, dare I say, in, in the history of marketing, 
you know, like right up there with Coca-Cola or, or I don't know, CNN once upon a time. It, it's become such a, a touchstone, but it didn't, they never used that in the first season. Did they, did that come in later? That, that didn't come in until the fourth season, actually. Fourth um, season. Well, well, the fourth season, you know, I, I should, I should check myself because I'm, I'm thinking the music and the, and the actual visual, the visual of the door and the eyeball and the window and everything that was, that was fourth season. That came ah. in the fourth season and that was with the doo 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 theme right. song. But the, but the doo-doo-doo may have actually also been in the third season. They just changed the visual. So I think it was the third season, actually. But, but the original, the first two seasons, certainly the first season, was the much more uh, dramatic, so, so to speak, um, and ethereal, much more ethereal music with there is a fifth dimension beyond that, which was known to man. And you kind of see the gauzy you know, filter going across the screen. This dimension is vast as space and as time as infinity. So that was the original, yeah. But the doo-doo-doo-doo is the one that's stuck in everybody's brain and stuck in the popular culture forever. You just say those, like you said, four notes, and you know exactly what you're talking about. Do we know the, the origin of that song, who wrote it, and how it came out? How it came uh, out? It was, well, it was um, uh, Bernard Herman. I believe was uh, Mary's Mary's constant and Bernard Herman were the two main ones who wrote the two themes for the Twilight Zone. And I believe that one was Bernard Herman. And um, I don't know the story behind how he actually came up with that. Uh, but uh, it was a stroke of genius apparently, because yeah, I mean, it's so it's just immediately recognizable. Yeah. What I want to know is, is the estate <laughs> still receiving uh, royalties for that? For the song, for the, yeah. for the theme? Yeah. That I don't know. I mean, I'm certain. I'm sure it was, you know, a work for hire, as they say. You know, so so he likely didn't uh, get full ownership of the of the music. I'm sure about that. But um, but uh, hopefully he got a little something. Yeah, I'm hoping he got, he got a little something out of it. All right, hold tight. We'll be back with more. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Subscribe at strangeplanetpodcast.com.